0: Well, we won't do quite as many chapters as last week. Y'all have been doing great with that. I know a couple of times so far in Chronicles we've covered broad uh, areas of of the Word. That first study covering the first, what was it, eight chapters, and then last week uh, was, I think, five. Um, just three tonight. Just three quick chapters. A little brevity for you. I was going to do four, but uh, we're going to come to the end of this and... Um, There's just an area to pause and consider and think about tonight. As we continue our study of 1 Chronicles, we recognize much of the content is review. If you've gone through studies here at the bridge before, or even if you've read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings before, you know that much of this is is repetition, Uh, it's review, it's the Lord restating these things. It's called the law of recurrence, at least among theological minds. That's where God repeats, restates, and reviews, especially those things that are more significant. Things that He wants us to hear again and again to get into our brains, into our minds, into our hearts. And it's much more than just history that's reviewed. It's it's great principles. It's concepts. It's love. The love of God is reviewed again and again throughout Scripture. Grace is reviewed again and again and again throughout Scripture. Hell, (laughs) changing direction there, is reviewed several times in Scripture because these things are significant. And the Lord wants us to be aware of these things. He knows as our Creator that we learn by repetition. And that's true. The more we hear something, the more it has a tendency to get in. And so the Lord repeats things in the Word the apostles understood this. Paul wrote to the church of Philippi, chapter 3, verse 1, he said, to write the same things is no trouble to me and it is a safeguard to you. I'm going to say the same thing, Paul says, that I've said before, you've heard me say it before, you've learned it before, I'm going to say it again. Why, Paul? Because it safeguards you. What does that mean? It means that it locks us more firmly in the truth. You know what's amazing about us as, as human beings? We can hear the truth, And within minutes, start to wander off. We can be raised in solid, grounded, biblical teaching. And give us a few weeks, and we can go off in some bizarre, weird direction that is so far from the Bible, it's scary. And so, Paul says, I'm going to repeat this again, to safeguard you. And the more time we spend in the Word and the more time we review these truths, the more safeguarded our faith is. Peter wrote in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he said, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you know and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And so, the Bible has this law of recurrence to safeguard and establish us. To be sure that we understand these things, these principles, and that we can walk with them Firmly in place. The law of recurrence is seen throughout Scripture. We saw it at the very beginning in the creation account. Now, critics say that there's a problem with Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 because they're in contradiction. They're two different creation accounts. No, they're not. The first one is the broad overview of the seven days of creation, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2 is the honed in perspective where God more specifically tells how He created man. And it's very interesting to look at Genesis 1 and 2, because Genesis 1, the word God is used throughout the chapter, Elohim in the Hebrews. You get to Genesis 2, suddenly it's Lord, Yahweh, is used. Why the shift? Because in chapter 2, God is much more intimately dealing with man, of whom He is Lord. He's God, Elohim, over all creation, but He's Lord of the heart of man. But it's repetition, Genesis chapter 2, restating creation and expounding upon it and honing in on the thing of greatest importance to the Lord, and that is the creation of man. Another example is the whole book of Deuteronomy. You could call it the first legal law review, because what Deuteronomy does is go back to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus Numbers, literally all four books, and restates and clarifies and lays down the law in, in one single book so Deuteronomy is that example and in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 9 Moses writes give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life but make them known to your sons and to your grandsons Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 9 another example of the law of recurrence is the four gospels four perspectives of the life of Jesus. All unique, all similar. Many of the stories, many of the teachings are the same. Some almost exactly the same. And yet there are some variances, not because of contradiction, but again, because God wants us to see Jesus from four different angles. To understand Him in four different ways. Matthew writes about Jesus from the perspective of a Hebrew king. The fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. We studied through Matthew together. Mark Mark just talks about Jesus as a man of action. Mark, probably the first of the Gospels written. It's just, here's what Jesus did. Boom, boom, boom. Sixteen chapters. You're in, you're out, you're done. Luke comes along and talks about the Son of Man and what that means and how Jesus functioned with the people. A little bit longer. And then John, decades later than the other guys, writes the Gospel of John where he gets into who Jesus really was and that is God. And without those four Gospels, we would lack some perspective on Jesus and God repeats Himself so that we will know who Jesus truly is. Now, there's something else that's very significant in this concept of the law of recurrence. As we reread historical and scriptural accounts, it's not just what's repeated that matters. Two things that we get when we have a repetitive story. We get things that are added, that clarify and broaden our understanding, and we have things that are omitted. And when something's left out, the second time a story is repeated, you might have to ask yourself the question, Why? Why in 1 and 2 Samuel does God talk about this? But now in First and Second Chronicles, He completely skips over it. We're going to look at both those things tonight, both additions and omissions. They're worth paying attention to. So I just say that to say, remember, as we zero in on some more history already seen in 2 Samuel, and if you're a note taker, I'm going to go ahead and give you an outline of what we're going to cover tonight. In fact, I'm going to give you an outline, and pay close attention to this. An outline of the three chapters, chapter 18, 19, and 20 of 1 Chronicles that we're going to look at. And I will give you the parallel chapter in 2 Samuel. But again, listen closely to how this plays out. Number one in our outline, David's wars. The wars of David. That's what we're going to cover first. That's 1 Chronicles chapter 18. It's a parallel almost precisely, almost exactly to 2 Samuel chapter 8. So 1 Chronicles 18... 2 Samuel chapter 8, same content, David's words. Secondly, answering Ammon. Answering Ammon, or the Ammonites. This is David responding to something that the Ammonites do that's a horrific thing, a terrible thing. It's talked about in chapter 19 of 1 Chronicles and in chapter 10 of 2 Samuel. So, chapter 18 of 1 Chronicles is chapter 8 of 2 Samuel. Chapter 19 of First Chronicles is chapter 10 of Second Samuel. What about chapter 9 of Second Samuel? I'll tell you in a minute. But we skip that. It's not repeated. It's omitted. And then number 3 in our outlines, we have David's wars answering Ammon. And number 3, fall in the springtime. I'm going to call it fall in the springtime. I'll explain that in a few minutes. That's chapter 20. First Chronicles chapter 20. Just the first, first three verses. That's as far as we'll get tonight. That is also in 2 Samuel, listen to this, chapter 12, verses 26 through 31. So we have a couple of omissions here. In the outline, there's no recurring passage in 1 Chronicles for either 2 Samuel chapter 9 or 2 Samuel chapter 11 through 12, verse 25. Those two are completely omitted from 1 Chronicles. Well, what are those chapters and why are they omitted? 2 Samuel chapter 9 is the story you may recall of David's kindness to a man named Mephibosheth. Second Samuel 9, the story of David's kindness to Mephibosheth when David was at peace and he begins to look around and says, is there anyone left of Jonathan's household to whom I can show kindness? And there was one little cripple, Mephibosheth. And that's in 2 Samuel 9. You're not going to see it repeated at all in 1 Chronicles. Why not? Well, my sense is it's not repeated because Mephibosheth is along the line of Saul. And 1 Chronicles is the line of David. It's the Davidic focus that Ezra, or the, the writer of 1 Chronicles, has. He has focused on the Messianic line, and Saul's line is not a part of the picture, so it's not worth mentioning in 1 Chronicles. The other thing that is not repeated is 2 Samuel 11-12, and through 12 verse 25. It's probably the most fascinating omission, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. But let's start in verse 1 of chapter 18, David's Wars. The parallel 2 Samuel chapter 8. David's Wars. Now after this it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them and took Gath and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. He defeated Moab and the Moabites became servants to David bringing tribute. Okay, he defeated the Philistines. You know where the Philistines camped out? You know where their territory was, right? Anyone remember where that would be considered today in Israel? Gaza Strip. Someone say Gaza. It's Gaza, and it's the towns just north of there, Ashkelon, which you've heard about Hamas lobbing you know, missiles from the Gaza Strip into Ashkelon in Israeli territory. Well, Ashkelon was a Philistine town by the same names. So those towns along that southeastern uh, coast or south western coast of Israel. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah, as far as Hamat, and he went to establish his rule to the Euphrates River. Euphrates River. David took from him a 1,000 chariots and 7,000 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, ow, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Aramaeans of Damascus came to help Hadadetsir, uh, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 men of the Aramaeans. Since they're of Damascus, that would be the region of Syria today. Where are we? Verse 6. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus and the Arameans became servants to David bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. I like that. David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadetser and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Tibhop and from Kun, the cities of Hadadetser, David took a very large amount of bronze with which Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the bronze utensils that would you know ultimately be in the temple. This is important. Every time David went out on conquest and brought in the spoils, he set it all aside for the work of the temple. And literally, the first temple was worth billions of dollars. Some say anywhere between five and eight billion dollars worth of metals and materials, gold, silver, bronze, went into the construction of the first temple. And David got it all through these conquests, and as he got peace for Israel, he also got uh, stuff that went into the temple. Okay, keep that in mind as we continue on. Now, verse nine. When Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadzer, king of Zobah, he sent Hadoram, his son, to King David to greet him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadzer and had defeated him. And Hadadzer had been at war with Tau. And Hadoram brought all kinds of articles of gold and silver. And bronze, and here's where you get the 5 to 8 billion in materials. King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and the gold, which he carried away from all the nations, from Edom, from Moab, from the sons of Ammon, the Philistines, and from Amalek. All of that set aside for the construction of the temple. Verse 12. Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, he defeated 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. That would be the valley of the region around the Dead Sea. And he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became servants to David, and the Lord helped David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, was the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Abimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Shavsha was secretary. Vinaiah the son of Jehoiada was over the Terethites and the Pelethites and the sons of David were chiefs at the king's side now just three things I want to quickly point out in chapter 18 a couple of small issues and then one rather large issue in verse 2 we're told that David defeated the Moabites but he allowed a remnant of them to survive in fact we see quite a bit of mercy from David given to the people that he destroys he rarely destroys them completely And with the case of the Moabites, we're told back in 2 Samuel chapter 8 that he allowed one out of three of the army to live. And that was an act of mercy, especially in those days. Why didn't David just wipe out the Moabites? That's issue number one. Why didn't he just wipe them all out? Just get rid of them, man. And especially because down the line the Moabites would continue to be a pain in Israel's neck. A lot of these surrounding nations, when not completely wiped out, would come back to bite Israel later. Why not just take them all out, get them out of the way? David may well have shown some restraint because here his great-grandmother was a Moabite woman. You remember her name? It was Ruth. And because Ruth was a Moabitess, I think David showed some mercy especially to the people of Moab. Second issue. Why did David hamstring the poor horses? I mean, what did they do to hurt anybody? You know, they're just horses. It's not like they choose a side. He could have used all those horses that, that he conquered in battle. He could have taken them all. And in fact, Solomon would. All across Israel today, there are remnants, archaeological finds, in Megiddo. Megiddo was a great horse city for Solomon. And he had stables there. He had stables right there at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And there are several stables of Solomon throughout the region of Israel even today. Because Solomon amassed for himself massive numbers of horses. Why did David take these four horses? He set aside a hundred, but he hamstrung the rest of them. I mean, it's painful, it just seems a little harsh. Well, to be specific, hamstringing a horse is literally cutting the tendon or the sinews at the back of the knee on the back leg of the horse. It would be a little painful at first, but the horse would heal. It just wouldn't be able to run in battle anymore. So, in essence, David actually did these war horses a favor. He let them retire early. <laughs> sent them out to pasture. Let them relax and hang out. They never would fight again because they wouldn't have the strength to fight. So, on the one hand, David didn't just wipe out all the horses. He just incapacitated them for battle. But there's another reason that uh, that David did this. That he didn't amass horses for himself because the Lord had said not to. Deuteronomy 17, verse 16 says moreover the king shall not multiply horses for himself nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses since the Lord has said to you you shall never again return that way and the whole focus was not to have a mighty army of horse drawn chariots the Lord wanted it to be clear to Israel and all the surrounding nations that the power was God's and not in the legs of the horses so David is fulfilling exactly what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy Don't amass for yourself horses. By the way, do you remember David's song when the ark was finally housed in Jerusalem? Back in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 11, says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. In verse 28 of 1 Chronicles 16, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Which is the reason for the Deuteronomic law. It's, it's not that God doesn't love horses. It's so that Israel would trust the Lord for their strength, and not horses, and not weaponry, and not in warfare. By the way, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, also declares that the king of Israel should not multiply for himself wives. It says, do not multiply for yourselves horses, and do not multiply for yourselves wives, and so David did not multiply for himself horses. isn't it isn't it typical of us to hear one command and completely skip the very next one in the same verse I mean that is such an aspect of human nature we read things and we see what we can accept what we're comfortable with what we will do and the things that we just don't like in our theology, man, forget that one. You know. I know he said don't get the horse, so I'm, I'm, look, I'm 50-50 here, Lord. You know, I'm one for two. That's not horrible, is it? <laughs> now the third issue. The third issue is this. One of the biggest complaints of people when they read the Old Testament is all the wars. They look at the Old Testament and you've heard people say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is cool. God of the Old Testament I have a problem with. Not recognizing that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. (laughs) One and the same. And people have a big issue with all the wars, especially with the fact that the Lord sends people into war. Why are there so many wars? So much fighting, so much bloodshed in the Old Testament. The root problem and this has been the way it's been since the beginning and will be the way it is until Jesus comes again. The root problem of all war is the sinful nature of man. And that's very simple. And if we stop and just think for a moment, everybody, I believe, at least believers, would come to that understanding. It, it's the sin nature. That's why we fight. It's why there's war. That's what James says. He raises the question in the New Testament. James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts or wars among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And the truth is, and J. Vernon McGee said this back in the 80's, and we repeat it, and the truth is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago, as it was 4,000 years ago, you can march and protest war all you want, it's not going to stop war there's still going to be war I'm not saying don't protest if that's where your heart's leading you then we should not be at war okay fine but you're not going to stop it get yourself a nice pair of tennis shoes it's not going to help when you're out there holding up your sign there will still be war until the Prince of Peace comes and puts down war and stops all sin as long as there's sin there is going to be war you might say yeah but the Lord encourages it in the Old Testament that's the problem I have He encourages it no, He deals with it what are you talking about? He, he deals with it. As a dad, I discourage my kids from hitting each other, but I also spank them. And there were those who in the psychological world will say, well, you're setting up a, a mental conflict for your children. Because you're saying, don't hit, and then you're hitting them. No, I'm not hitting them. I'm spanking them. I'm spanking the tar out of them, but I'm spanking them. What What is going on here? I'm teaching them a lesson. Hitting is wrong, and yet there are times where they needed spankings because nothing else spoke their language. Nothing else got through them. Now I realize there may be some of you here tonight that disagree with me on that and yet I got results. Right, Corey? <laughs> now good. It's, it's been a long time since Corey's gotten a spanking. I mean like months. <laughs> what I'm saying is this. I'm saying that God spoke the language of the people. God used what the people understood. Yes, God used war. He used it as discipline. He used it as punishment. Because in our sinful, unsanctified state, we understand it. We get it. Our source of warring is our sin nature. And you might say, well, so," but the Lord doesn't have a sin nature, right? Exactly. Exactly. God doesn't have a sin nature, so His source for war, His reason for calling Israel to take people out in war or telling people to fight in the battles that He tells them to fight in, His reason, His motivation is not sin-driven like ours is. It's discipline-driven. Sometimes it's mercy-driven. How could it possibly be mercy-driven? Oh, when you take out a people group who sacrifice their children in the fire? That's like shooting a rabid dog. You're putting them out of their misery. You know generation after generation of horrible brutality and abuse in certain nations that were there in the Middle East no one thinks about that when they think about the Lord sending Israel in as a righteous lamp to put down that sin and brutality. Rick sounds like you're just trying to justify a vengeful god. Romans chapter 12 verse 18 Paul said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I like that because the reality is, as far as it depends on me, I can try and be at peace, but someone is not going to be at peace with me. It's just kind of a reality. Accept that truth that no matter how you try to keep peace with other people, there will always be some who don't want it. You do the best you can. You, as far as it depends on you. But Paul says this. He says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So Rick, your, your God is a vengeful God. No, but vengeance is His. He says... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the point. God can't be overcome by evil. Because God is perfectly good. And therefore, He alone is justified in all that He does. His motives alone are pure motives. So when God calls a people group or a person to war against another group... He alone has the right to do that coming from the place of perfect motives. I don't always understand it. I mean, there's a whole lot of warring in the Hebrew Scriptures that I can explain based on what was going on, but there's some that I simply can't. I don't know why God said, do this here and now. But I do know this. God's perfect. And He's coming from a perfect place of pure Motivation. He alone has the right to deal with sin in His way because 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So simply this, war is the deeper problem of sin in the heart of man and until that's dealt with, until sin is out of the picture, war is going to continue. It's going to continue. The sanctification of the Spirit of God is the only thing that can bring about peace. Both in our world and in our lives, Hebrews 12.14 says, pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. It's what God does in us as we receive Jesus. So in the same way, David, he trusted in the strength of the Lord, and so the Lord gave David peace. And we see that throughout chapter 18. In fact, chapter 18 in a nutshell is simply David gaining unprecedented victory over unrelenting enemies all around. Unprecedented victory over Israel's unrelenting enemies, and that's exactly what the Lord promised us through Jesus. Let me say it again. This is what Jesus brings you. Unprecedented victory over over an unrelenting enemy. It's what Jesus offers. Philippians 4.7 tells us, the peace of God, which surpasses all com- comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3.16, May the Lord of peace Himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. David's kingdom here is a picture and type of the messianic kingdom to come. David having achieved finally peace in Israel, though the enemies were unrelenting. In the meantime, until the Messianic Kingdom comes, there is a peace that passes understanding. And if you've walked with the Lord any amount of time, you know He offers you a peace you can't find anywhere else. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. John 14, 27. Now it gets kind of interesting. Part 2, Answering Ammon. The parallel passage, 2 Samuel chapter 10. We'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 19. Now it came about after this that Nahash, the, son, the king of the sons of Ammon, died. And his son became king in his place. David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the sons of Ammon to Hanun to console him. Apparently at some point, we don't know when, there's no record of it in scripture, apparently this this king Nahash of the Ammonites showed kindness to David. Nahash is the same one that Saul went after early on at the very beginning of his reign and fought him and took him out. So it's possible Nahash was trying to play politics and be kind to David to undermine Saul during his rule. We don't know. There's nothing in Scripture that tells us. But what we do see here is David is extending kindness at two levels here. One, it's kindness as a diplomatic sympathy to Hanun, this son of Nahash who is now the new king of Ammon. Diplomatic sympathy. He's showing a kindness, kind of a, you know, a nod in, in his direction look. I don't have any beef with you. You don't have any beef with me. I liked your father the king. I'm sorry he died. Sending some ambassadors ahead. And we're told that uh, in Galatians 5.22 that kindness is number five in the fruit of the Spirit. Number five there in the orchard of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. But the kindness here is also diplomatic. Not just spiritual, not just sympathetic, but it's diplomatic. In that, if you want to know kindness you got to show kindness. If you want to know it, you got to show it. However, a kindness shown does not necessarily guarantee a kindness returned. Look at verse 3. But the princes of the sons of Ammon said to Hanun, Do you think that David is honoring your father and that he has sent comforters to you? Have not his servants come to you to search out and overthrow and to spy out the land? A little paranoia here. Verse 4. So... Hanun took David's servants and shaved them and cut off their garments in the middle as far as the hips and sent them away. Yeah. In our culture, gang, shaving half a beard, and that's what we're told, Samuel tells us, he shaved off half the beards of these guys. Shaving half a beard and pantsing someone in our culture would be a prank. Okay? Okay? And we might kind of laugh it off. And trust me, when I read the story, reread it because we've read it before. There were several puns I had to purposefully leave behind. The bottom line is this. What? <laughs> Sorry. What we've got here, truth be told, is men sent back with half beards and full moons. That's what's going on. All right? I mean, it's terrible. And that's exactly how the Bible reads. They cut off half of their beards and then cut off their garments from the hips down and sent them on their merry way. Now, I read this and first couple of times again, kind of laughed it through and thought, man, that's horrible, that's just terrible. But we need to understand the cultural context of what Hanun was doing here. How bad it really was. Samuel again tells us Hanun shaved off half their beards in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Culturally, most Jewish men, especially at that time, would rather die than lose their beards. It was that important. It was called the primary ornament of the look of man, was the beard. It was so important, and and important still today in the Middle East. It's rather important, and among the Hasidic Jews, very important. That beard that they would just let grow. As a matter of fact, Jewish men wouldn't even shave the sides of their beards. It just grew as it grew. And to have it shaved off, to have half of it shaved off like that, was an utter disgrace to them culturally. 1891. A man by the name of Theodore Herzl. Perhaps you've heard the name. He's the father of modern Zionism. He was on assignment in Paris. He became a, a correspondent with a newspaper there. And he was sent out on a story where he witnessed the public humiliation of a French army officer. His name was Alfred Dreyfus. Alfred Dreyfus was a Jew. And his humiliation was such that as they stripped him of his rank, they plucked out his beard as the people gathered around in the streets there of Paris shouted, Death to the Jews! Death to the Jews! And it was in that moment that Theodore Herzl recognized unless the Jewish people had a country of their own, they would cease to exist. And so he called within five years of that moment the first Zionist conference in Basel, Switzerland, and from there, the groundwork began to be laid for the return of the Jews to Israel. Because a man's beard was plucked out By the way, another more famous Jew had his beard plucked out as well. Prophetically speaking, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, Jesus is talking and says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Culturally, what Hanun did to these men in shaving off half their beards was horrific. Politically, Shaving off half the beards of the ambassadors was an anti diplomatic slap in the face of David. Politically shameful and militarily provocative. Davidson's ambassadors in kindness and peace, Hanun returns the favor by provoking him to war. Remember what we said about war there will always be war whether you extend the hand of diplomacy or not. One thing that is misunderstood, and I am not a warmonger, but I gotta say this, one thing that is misunderstood about the Arabic mindset in the Middle East is peace is won by strength. That is the attitude that's understood. Diplomacy, all diplomacy means in the Muslim world is more time for us to amass weapons and produce strategy. Well, I don't want us to go to war. You know what? I don't either. I don't want to be at war with anybody. But we've got to recognize culture and the reality that there is sin in the world and as long as there is sin here, we can extend the hand of diplomacy all we want. There is still going to be war. And David's example is perfect for that. It's a picture, I think, of where we're at in the world today. There are two ways, by the way, to cease all wars in the world other than Jesus coming. Two ways. Number one, when both sides lay down their arms and agree to stop fighting. Both sides. If one side does it, it doesn't matter. I've told you before, It's it's been said that if the Palestinians will lay down their arms, there will be peace in Israel. If the Israelis will lay down their arms, there will be no Israel. So when both sides lay down their arms and agree, or or the other way to peace until sin is dealt with, is when there is a definite winner and a defeated loser. Otherwise, you're not going to have peace. And it reminds me that as ambassadors of the son of David, we will face similar treatments. We will be shamed. We will be exposed if we try to stand up for Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. As an ambassador for the Son of David, you become a target immediately for the enemy. And you will be at times treated, treated to uh, be treated to indignity and to exposure. Now listen, this is important. What I mean by exposure is simply this. If you stand up for Jesus, Satan will look for every possible way to discredit your standing up. He will look for every possible way to make you look the hypocrite. He will try to call, call up old sin and bring it to the forefront. He will try to call up hidden sin, which is one of the reasons I believe God is so serious about us confessing and getting it out there. Because what we hold on to and hide here, it's going to come out and the enemy will use that to expose you and to ruin your witness. We are called to holiness gang because we will be exposed. And when we're exposed by the enemy, the best place to be is for people to look at you and go, Man, I got nothing on this guy. There's, I can't find anything on her. You know, when they bring up the past, you can say, Yeah, I've already confessed to that, and that is part of what what I was then, but it's not who I am now. So watch out for that exposure. Verse 5. Then certain persons went and told David about the men, and he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. Obviously he gave him a new set of clothes. (laughs) But David understood, and and here's a picture again of the absolute humiliation of these guys having, having now half beards. David says, look, I just want you to hang out here. There's some grace in this. Stay down here in Jericho. Don't come back home yet. When your beards are fully regrown, come on home. And we'll have a hero's welcome for you. This reflects in a way the grace of God in that even when we are treated poorly, He always makes a way to restore us. To give us time to grow back into His work and His ministry. Verse 6, When the sons of Ammon saw that they had made themselves odious to David... Hanun and the sons of Ammon sent 1,000 talents of silver to hire for themselves chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Aram-Meaca, and from Zobah. So they hired for themselves 32,000 chariots and the king of Meaca and his people who came and camped before Medeba. And the sons of Ammon gathered together from their cities and came to battle. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. The sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, and the kings who had come were by themselves in the field. And so we see the real mentality behind Hanun. He was baiting David to battle. So David says, you want battle, you want war, we're going to take it right to you. Now, continuing on, verse 10, it says, When Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel, and they arrayed themselves against the Arameans. But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abshai, or Abishai, his brother, and they arrayed themselves against the sons of Ammon. What's going on here? They're being attacked from Syria in the north and Gaza in the south basically not gods but the Ammonites in the south and the Arameans in the north so the battles come in both directions like Hezbollah and Hamas two directions in Israel and so Joab says I'm going to take this group and we're headed north and we're going to fight against the north and hold them off there you fight against the south and hold them off there it's a great battle strategy in fact this same exact strategy was used in the civil war by both the north and the south covering and protecting their strongholds and going up north and going down south in two directions to fight Now, continuing on, uh, he says in verse 12, Joab speaking to Abshai, his brother, If the Aramaeans are too strong for me, then you shall come and help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. And that way, in other words, I got your back. I got your back covered this way, you got my back covered that way, and we can just fight one direction, knowing the other one is right there behind us to protect. Verse 13, I like this. He says, Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in His sight. Joab's given this great military strategy and then he says, he says, and I like this, be strong, fight for the people and may the Lord do good in His sight. In other words, for all our work and all our strength and all our battling, may God have His way. May the the ultimate result be up to the Lord. You know, The Lord is not looking for winners among us. He's looking for willingness. And there's such a huge difference in that. He's not looking for individuals to stand up and and be these great massive successes in the church or in the world. He's just looking for people who are willing to show up. Period. Some of us will work in ministry all of our lives and never see much happen. Jeremiah the prophet was one of those. You may have heard the story of Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Why was he weeping? Because he didn't have one convert in his entire life of preaching. It even got so bad that at one point God said, Stop praying for the people because they're not going to repent, but keep preaching. What? And don't pray for them because I'm not going to hear your prayer. They're going to have to go through Babylonian captivity. But you keep preaching the word. Why? I want willingness. Jeremiah, for his part, among the prophets, would come off like a loser because he changed nobody's heart. And yet, he was a winner as far as God was concerned because he just stayed to the task. He was committed regardless of the results. I see that in Joab here, in Abishai. Look, regardless of the results, we're going to do our best. We're going to do our best and commit the rest. Maybe you've heard that before. Do your best. Give God all you've got to give and leave the results up to Him. Don't worry about the results or what happens or how it all comes out. Psalm 22.8 says, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. I chose Psalm 22, eight, because that's the same psalm that prophetically describes the crucifixion. And in that picture of the crucifixion, it comes down to verse 8. Commit yourself to the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord. Jesus on the cross looked like the loser. He did not look like the winner. And, as a matter of fact, even after the resurrection, though you and I know He was the winner, And though the apostles knew and and, and those who would follow Jesus knew and believed that, there were still countless hundreds of thousands of people who thought Jesus was the loser. Even today, there are still people who think Jesus was the loser. It wasn't a matter of winning or losing. It was willingness. It was commitment. And Jesus followed through. Because He followed through, He is the ultimate winner. And so are we in Him. Well, Joab and Abishai, they committed their way to the Lord. And the Lord did give them victory. Verse 14... Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans. And they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai his brother and entered the city, and Joab came back to Jerusalem. So they overcame one army, the other army said, we're out, and they took off. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river, with Shopak, the commander of the army of Hadetzer, leading them. And when it was told, David, he gathered all Israel together and he crossed the Jordan and came up upon them and drew up in formation against them. And when David drew up in battle array against the Aramans, they fought against him. The Aramans fled before Israel and David killed the Aramans, 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 foot soldiers and put to death Shophak, the commander of the army. So when the servants of Hadadetser saw they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with David. See that? <laughs> when they were defeated... They made peace with David. They had no other choice at that point, and they served him. Thus, the Aramaeans were not willing to help the sons of Ammon anymore. By the way, is there any other reason you might think in this whole story we just read for God to repeat the story about the abuse of David's messengers? I mean, obviously, it's the pictures we talked about. We see this as, as followers that you and I, as ambassadors for Christ, might ourselves be abused. But Jesus told this parable, Matthew twenty-one thirty-three. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a winepress in it, and he built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers, and he went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves, and they beat one. And they killed another and they stoned a third. Again he sent another group of slaves larger than the first and they did the same thing to them. But afterward he sent his son saying, hey, they'll respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? A picture of the prophets, of the people God sent time after time after time to Israel and to the world. And how they were abused and some were killed and some were just cast out and some were poked fun at. Until God finally sent his own son. And we know the gospel story. What's interesting to me, and I talked about the law of recurrence as we began. This is what we see. God repeats stories to get certain themes into our hearts and into our minds. The abuse of David's messengers. We've we've received this story twice. We've read twice. David sent messengers and his guys were abused and sent back. And it is a picture of you and I in the church, but it's also a picture of what God has been doing throughout history, trying to make peace with mankind, trying to offer the hand of kindness. And man slaps it away. God is seeding these things into our hearts. you think David was upset when his ambassadors were treated the way they were? When the owner of the vineyard comes, Jesus says, what is he going to do? Well, chapter 20 now continues, and we see there was no mercy for the Ammonites who started this whole thing. So part three, what I call fall in the springtime. Part three. Then it happened... In the spring, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that Joab led out the army and ravaged the land of the sons of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Joab struck Rabbah and overthrew it. David took the crown of their king from his head and he found it to weigh a talent of gold. You know what a talent is? Seventy-five pounds. This crown weighed seventy-five pounds. And there was a precious stone in it and it was placed on David's head. Can you imagine? Okay, prop me up, guys. 75 pounds of gold on his head. And he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. Now watch this. He brought out all the people who were in it and he cut them with saws and with sharp instruments and with axes. What did David do? He hacked them to pieces. Brutal. Brutal. It tells us, and thus David did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Is this just desserts for the sons of Ammon? I mean, for shaving half a beard and pantsing these guys, is this what all of the Ammonites deserved? This kind of brutality on the part of David? I want you to consider something tonight. As bad as the shameful and provocative actions of Hanun and the Ammonites were, I'm not sure they merited this kind of brutality, this kind of wholesale slaughter by David. But there's a reason for this, I believe. And we've got to think it through. Go back to verse 1. Verse 1 tells us, Then it happened in the spring. At the time when the kings go out to battle. And I think that's kind of interesting because that was the kind of par for the course springtime was, was battle season. For us, it's baseball season. For them, it was battle season. And there's a reason for that. The people were rural in those days, and most of them farmers. The men would have to farm. They'd have to take care of, of their harvest, their planting, all of that. And it was only in the springtime when they were free to go fight. And it was in the springtime when the weather was better and they could fight, so springtime was, was battle time. But we read again these first three words of chapter 20, then it happened. Then what happened? It's what I call the greatest omission of 1 Chronicles. Then David stayed home in Jerusalem and met Bathsheba. Here's where it happens, right here in chapter 20. Actually, it's not mentioned here. Let me read to you what is left out of 1 Chronicles. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon, and they besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Remember, he didn't amass horses for himself. He inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Who we already know from earlier chapter and earlier chapter in First Chronicles that Uriah was one of the thirty mighty men of David one of his top upper echelon men. David sent messengers to her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. When did David lay with Bathsheba again? In the springtime. In the springtime, when the grass is so green and full and rich in Israel, when it's hard to imagine a country like Israel, that is so green and dotted with flowers from one end of the country to the other, it's hard to imagine what it's going to look like in August. Dry and baked and brown. All the greenery gone. But the picture is interesting here. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6 says, All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. All flesh is grass. Why would David do what David did? Why stay home? And there in the springtime, when it's the perfect time for him to be out, engaged in battle for his people, why stay home? Why would he fall such a great fall with this woman? Bathsheba. I had a friend recently, and I don't, I, think I, I don't think I've shared this with you. And it's nobody that any of you know. Just make that real clear. But uh, a good friend who had an affair and absolutely shocked me. It blew my mind. And in talking this through with him, how how did this happen? What, how did it? And, and you know what? We came down to all flesh is grass, man. All flesh is grass. And I am, listen to me, I am just as capable of that kind of sin as my friend is. I need to say that clearly to you. That's why, as a pastor, I don't meet one-on-one with any woman, ever. Don't worry, women, I'm not a cad. You know, I'm not going after them like, ooh. But but I'm telling you something. There are certain areas for men that are, men, there's no reason any of us should ever be alone with a woman who's not our wife. Period. Just don't do it. That was Billy Graham's standard. It's why he never had a problem his whole entire life, because he never he wouldn't even get into an elevator alone with a woman to go up one floor. He wouldn't get in a car. If someone at one of his crusades sent a woman to pick him up at the airport, he stayed at the airport until he sent a man. Or a group of people. That is wisdom. That is just smart. It's not being in that place. Why? Because all flesh is grass. And because whatever your particular sin is that you struggle with, guess what? I'm capable of that. Whatever my particular sin struggles are, you're capable of it too. All flesh is grass. David was 50 years old or in his mid-50s when this happened. He wasn't a young man who, who was having trouble controlling his passions. He was a guy who would reached a point in his life where he was like, Okay, I'm cool. I'm good. And on an evening when it was cool and good, he looks over the edge of his roof and, whoa, Mr. in mid-fifties is now thinking like a teenager and loses control of himself. You'd think that David, at that point in his life, would have a little more maturity. But I'm here to tell you maturity has nothing to do with it. All flesh is like grass. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us. And and you know what? It may not be sexual things that, that for you is a challenge. Something else is, though. And the grass is so beautiful in the springtime, by midsummer, it's brown and dead. That's how quickly we fade. Proverbs one thirty two says, The waywardness of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But he who listens to me shall live securely and will be at ease from the dread of evil. Now that's a life of ease. That's the life of ease that I want. The life that is at ease from the dread of evil. How do you get there? By listening to the Lord. And the more I listen to Jesus, the more I listen to the Father, both in prayer and in the Word, the stronger I am, and the more at ease I am, secure against the dread of evil. I call this the fall and the spring, because that's what it was for David. It was the fall. David's fall in the spring. And there's no mention of it in 1 Chronicles. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, because with the Lord, it's not just forgive and forget, it's forgive and omit. And we see in 1 Chronicles, the David and Bathsheba story is completely omitted. It's not even referred to. It's not mentioned in this. The closest we get is the mention a few chapters earlier of Uriah the Hittite as one of the mighty, mighty men. Nothing in First and Second Chronicles about this greatest sin of David's life—the standout, the one massive failure that overshadows all other things—it's gone. It's completely omitted. That's the thing—the difference between an omission and forgetting something. If you forget something, something, someone can remind you later. If it's omitted, it's not there even to be reminded of. That's how God forgives sin. Do you understand that? And we might remember it. We might trump up false guilt in our hearts about it, but God does not only forget, He omits. It's gone. Lord, do you remember when I did this? He did what? It's gone. It's also not mentioned because of something that David did. Hold that thought for a moment. Watch again what David does in the meantime. Listen to this one more time. Joab led the army out and ravaged the land of the sons of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. David stayed at Jerusalem. Joab struck Rabba and overthrew it. Now David shows up. Watch what he does. Took the crown of their king from his head and found it to weigh 75 pounds of gold, a talent of gold, and there was a precious stone in it and it was placed on David's head. You remember what he did with all the other stuff that he gained, all the other spoils of war? It went to the temple. Not this crown. David took it for himself. He brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. It does not tell us that He took the spoil for the temple. He may have, but He at least kept the crown for Himself. He brought out the people who were in it and cut them with saws and with sharp instruments and with axes. And thus David did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Did God tell him to hack up the people like that? I don't want to presume, but I don't see it. What I do see is David is behaving like a David that we have not seen before. This is not characteristic of the David who at least was merciful to the Moabites. You know, to the other people. He conquered them. He took out their armies. I mean, yeah, there, there was mass killing there, but it was their military fighters. It was their fighting men. In this story, it's all the people who are in the town. Men, women, children. All of them. This is not characteristic of David. He takes the victory for himself. No mention of, praise be to God who gave us the victory. Taking the crown and putting it on his own head. Look at what I did. As a matter of fact, Joab fought the war and and won. And when it was over, David shows up and takes credit. I mean, across the board, he's just not functioning like the David that we understand or that we've seen before. Now, on the side note here, don't feel too badly for the Ammonites. Alright, them being wiped out was not necessarily a bad thing. Amos chapter 1, verse 13, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. God's saying this was a horrifically brutal people. So don't feel bad for them. That's not what this is about. They were not exactly genteel you know, in their own right. But there's something to recognize here in David's behavior. David comes to Rabbah, takes the crown, slaughters the people. This all happened in the period somewhere between one to nine months between when David committed his sin with Bathsheba and had Uriah murdered and when he repented. It was in the interim that David comes to Rabbah and does this horrible thing. What are you saying? I'm saying David is not right in the heart. David's got a mess of sin in his heart and on his conscience that's weighing him down, and he is not functioning like he would otherwise. He is not functioning like a man after God's own heart here, because his sin is all before him. And that's what secret sin does. Over time it causes us to begin. See, this is what the world does not understand. That this sin is both a physical and behavioral thing. It has physical ramifications in our life. It's not just a spiritual thing out there. It's not just, oh, I sinned i in trouble with God, better pray. <laughs> it has physical consequence for us. L- listen to this, Psalm 38, verse 3. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. This is physical result of a spiritual problem. I'm bent over. I'm greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long, so there's an emotional result to a spiritual problem. My loins are filled with burning. There's no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. This is not just colorful allegorical language here, it's not intended to paint a guilty picture. There are actual real life consequences to our decisions to sin, and I think that's what we're seeing there in the first three verses of 1 Chronicles 20. The consequential behavior of a man whose heart is messed up big time, acting in a way he would not have acted before. Now, what did David do that righted his heart? He finally repented. He repented. I mean, it is so amazingly simple with God. David repented right after he was confronted. Think about that one. In our world, in our way of thinking, confrontation nullifies repentance. Spencer, if I have to tell you what your sin was, and then you tell me you're sorry and you repent, dude, all bets are off. You didn't come to me on your, of your own accord. I caught you. You know what? It's not the way it is with God. That's just not the way God functions. It doesn't matter when the confession comes, whether it comes from the person on their own, or they're confronted and discovered and their sin is exposed. Oh no! And then they repent. It doesn't matter which comes first. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. We've read this over and over recently. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. It doesn't matter if they're caught and repent, or if they repent before they're caught. doesn't make any difference with God. What matters is whether the heart becomes truly contrite and broken. And I am no judge of the heart. But the Lord is. Repentance is a heart issue with God. In his post-confrontation confession, David poured out his heart in that great psalm, Psalm 51. It is a page out of David's repentance journal. But he says this, You do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. How did David know that? Because he knew the Lord. He knew the Lord. His sin was heinous, but you know what? He knew the Lord. And when Nathan the prophet comes to David and the whole thing gets blown open and revealed, David doesn't run away in shame David doesn't hide in guilt. David doesn't try to push the whole thing back off on Bathsheba while she was the one taking the bath. He takes full responsibility and he repents before the Lord. And that coupled with God's grace is why the story is not in First Chronicles. It's omitted because God forgave what David repented of. That's why he was a man after God's own heart. Because David's heart was to the Lord. He knew. He knew his sin. God is not looking for perfection in us. He will create that. He will develop that. When Jesus comes, He will bring it to fruition. What He is looking for from us is realness. Honesty. God, I can't make it without You. Father, I am a fallen guy. And I need Your forgiveness. And I... Repent. Isn't that the message of the gospel? Jesus said in Luke twenty-four forty-five, after the resurrection, this is right before His ascension, He said to the apostles, I love this, it says He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How cool is that? And He said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that, listen to this, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. You see, what we've forgotten sometimes in the church is the repentance part. We want to preach forgiveness of sin to all the nations. But Jesus said, what must be preached is repentance for forgiveness of sins. Your repentance and mine. It's not that God doesn't want to forgive. It's not that he's waiting, okay, show me what you got bring your best apology let's see how good you can do it's that he knows if we don't repent our hearts are not toward him if we don't repent we're not going to receive that forgiveness we have to open up our hearts and say we need the forgiveness and it's something that i think sometimes is is lacking in our preaching repentance for forgiveness of sin well so you're saying that you know repentance is kind of like my work that i do no no repentance is not work repentance is opening your heart Repentance is just acceptance that you are a sinner who needs Jesus. It's nothing you do. It's opening your heart to what God has done, what Jesus did on the cross. I told you, we'd sing a couple more songs tonight, and I'd like to do that right now, and I don't know not about this today. I don't know if any of you are struggling with secret sin right now. You know, I, Like I said, I, I'm no judge of hearts. I don't know what's happening in your lives, in your hearts, what's going on. But I want to ask you this question. Are you holding on to some secret thing, some secret sin in your life? No one knows, maybe, but you. You know. Is there something tonight that is rotting in your heart or decaying in your spirit? Is there something in your life that's causing you to behave in a way that you know it's just not you, it's not the way you are in Jesus, but there's something you haven't dealt with with the Lord? Peter said, and I believe he would say to you and me tonight in Acts 3.19, Repent and return so your sins may be wiped away, that is, omitted, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord.